Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 351. Thanks to the people who became new members celebrating the fifth anniversary. The show can still use members, and lots of them, actually. You can join by going to thejazzsession.com slash join. It's super easy. You can start for as little as $10 a month. Thanks also to everyone who has uh, followed me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. D is in David. It actually is as in David. So if you're looking to rip off my identity and identity theft, that's my middle name. Uh, anyway, at Jason D. Crane, uh, we had a one-day fun drive on Monday, which was cool and successful, and also gave away 55 CDs on, on uh, Monday's show, which was really exciting. So with that said, I also want to thank the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. You can find links from there to buy their music, and you should because it's all great. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can, of course, remember what you just heard seconds ago in the show intro, and you can also listen to them. They've been on the show once or twice, I think just once, uh, and that's in the archives. So you can check them out. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo. He's online at twitter.com slash Dave Rabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. All About Jazz carries this show on their website, and they've created a widget to allow you to post the latest episode of the show on your website. It's super easy to use. Just go to allaboutjazz.com and type in Jazz Session Widget in the search box. If you need help installing it, let me know. I'd be happy to help you. I'll even come over. That's not true. And if you install it, do let me know because I'll mention you in my newsletter, which goes out uh, each week, usually on Thursday, although... It's occurring to me as I'm recording this intro for Thursday's show on Thursday afternoon that there's not going to be a Thursday newsletter because I'm not home and I'm not going to be doing one. So uh, it goes out on Friday this week. It's like a bonus somehow. It's like a Microsoft feature. Uh, so I think that's it for the thank yous. Uh, but do please become a member if you like what you hear. The show really only can survive uh, if people join. And in fact, it's the show is an abstract concept. I only can survive if people join. That's how I eat and sleep indoors, and I'm a big fan of both of those things. So please become a member at thejazzsession.com/join. Oh, speaking of the newsletter, by the way, uh, you can get that by going to thejazzsession.com, of course, and signing up for the mailing list. You'll see a link right at the top for mailing list. You just type in your name and your email address, and you'll get a copy of the newsletter each week. You'll have a, there'll be a link in there to a PDF copy, and then a text copy itself will come in your email. And it tells you who's on the show that week and gives you direct links to just go right to those shows and listen if you like. And it also has links usually to, I don't know, the occasional poem. It tells you who of my guests of that week is on tour and where, uh, those kinds of things. So if you want to stay informed with the jazz session and kind of the this community of people around it, then please do subscribe to the mailing list at thejazzsession.com. That seems like enough intro, don't you think? I do. So my guest today is Ocean Jewel. He's a saxophonist, and he has recorded uh, a fairly ambitious project called The First Suite for Quartet, which sounds like something else entirely, and uh, well, at least the title sounds like something else entirely. The actual music sounds like this.
My guest is the saxophonist and composer Ocean Jewel. His first CD is called First Suite for Quartet. It's on David Binney's Mythology label, and it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Jason. Pleasure to be here. So you decided to do something fairly ambitious for a first record, which is to make, just like it sounds, a big combination of through composed and improvised suite uh, for kind of typical jazz quartet instrumentation. Sure. And I thought maybe you could talk about why you decided to start your recording career that way. Well, I, I'm not really sure that I was thinking about the recording career at the time. It was more just, um, the idea of writing a, a big piece. And, um, <clears throat> I tend to like to write things that progress into other things so that you get an idea of a journey. Um, and you know, a lot of people have said, you know, this is kind of like your life, where you come from, where you, where you've been and where you are now. And I don't know, maybe that's in there. I wasn't thinking of that at the time. So, um, for me, it just seems, I like things to be a, a little bit on the epic side and we, we all play standard jazz and I play, you know, tunes and I write some compositions that are just head and solos, head out. That's great. But for me, I just have a lot more freedom to write something that, uh, has an opportunity to go somewhere else other than back to where it started, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it sure does. Can you talk about uh, a little bit about the the origin of this piece? Did it start from a kind of a thematic idea or a, a melodic motif that you then fleshed out, or were you hearing little fragments? There are a couple themes in it that, that repeat throughout the piece, um, but that sort of came in the writing. I guess mm. the framework came first. So um, to think about... Uh, the idea of having different movements that that gave the the players the improvisers a chance to show different facets of themselves uh whereas if it was all one style if it was seven movements but it was all in the style of say bebop or um progressive jazz or what i don't know free jazz then you know people get the chance to show themselves they get a chance to to use these vehicles as 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 an outlet for improvisation but if if instead it goes through these different um versatile aspects then people get a, a real chance to explore different parts of themselves and that's really where it came from i guess more than anything you know and then that would be the broad concept and then after that the movements came and the movements kind of opened themselves up and i think the the specific writing kind of came last mm. but there are definitely a couple themes in in the work uh melodic uh themes that that are all through, even, even in the cadenza that I played, you know, uh, in one of the movements, uh, it was based on, on one of those themes. So. Did you know right from the beginning who specifically would be playing this I did. piece? I did, yeah. And so is the writing tailored 
oh, to abs- those folks? Absolutely, without a doubt. And and they're all very versatile musicians. So uh, uh, the pianist is a friend of mine, Amino Bellimani. He's from Morocco, and he plays a lot of different uh, music from around the world. I'm trying not to use the word, the term world music, <laughs> uh, but he plays a lot of uh, airway music. We all play a lot of airway music because we went to Cal Arts together. Tell people what that is. Well, Cal Arts is... Uh, not Cal, Cal Arts, but airway oh, music. Okay. Airway yeah. music. I think is, people uh, probably know what Cal Arts is. Uh, airway music is uh, music from Western Africa, uh, specific, specifically the kind we play is from Ghana. And uh, it's, it's drumming, singing, and dancing, but... Um, you know, it's social music, but it's it's very. I I don't know if I'd call it polyrhythmic, but I guess that's what you would have to say in an interview in order to get the idea across. Uh, in other words, there's a bell pattern, and then over top of that bell pattern or interweaved is this whole weave of different rhythms that are probably you could think about them being in different uh, meters. So it just kind of you know the experience we all studied this at Cal Arts and the experience of doing that really opened up the way we hear rhythm, uh, especially the idea that there's a downbeat, you know, and, and there's really no downbeat in this in this kind of music. So, Did you guys play this music on the instruments that you play as your main instruments, or did you play other more traditional No, we played them on airway drums okay. and, and did the singing and the dancing, and, and we studied, we all studied from uh, Alfred Ledzekpo, who was a, who is a a master drummer from Ghana who's taught at Cal Arts for like 30 years. I think before that he taught at Columbia for a while. And um, he just retired actually last year. So we had a really rare experience to study from this this just master and, and the depth. And, and he had a way of teaching that was completely different than what you get in, in uh, quote unquote, the West, which is where people show you, this is how you do this. Okay, now let's go back. Let me show you again how you do this specifically. Instead, it was more of a... Um, well, an African approach to learning, which is that, you know, you're going to sit on the, the instrument that is, you're going to clap for a while, and then you're going to play the shaker, <laughs> and you're going to watch us for a while, and you're going to absorb it in that way. And when you're ready, then you can move on to something else, you know. And some of these guys, uh, the pianist Amino, he got very far. He's playing the lead drum a lot now. And uh, so the rest of us got to just absorb the, the basic idea of this music. So um, the second movement of the suite is kind of based on that idea that there's a ground. The bass is playing sort of a 9-8 rhythm. And the rest of the, the music is on calls. So um, we could determine where we wanted to play the melodic content. And it was you know, not necessarily based on a downbeat. So mm. everything was kind of open in that way. How did you determine where to play the melodic content? How, was that signaled in some way? Or? Yeah, we look at each other and, and kind of, I guess after a while, we kind of got used to the idea of where it would be. Um, but basically we looked at each other and sometimes I would let the bass and the drums go for a while and just let them sort of open the rhythm up. And it was different every single time. These guys are, are real improvisers, you know. Um, rarely do I say it's this kind of feel and I expect it to be that feel the next time or the next time after that, you know, basically whatever they do with it is what I want them to do. They're very dynamic musicians and, and, uh, very versed in all kinds of music. So we are uh, three of us, uh, the, the drummer and the, and the piano and I, we played in kind of a rock band together in Los Angeles at the time. And they all play jazz and they all play, you know, pop music and they all play music from around the world. So this is kind of the basic idea of the piece was, sure. was that, you know, we have more to say than just, you know, standard bebop licks. Not that I, I love bebop, but, you know, don't get me wrong. Tell me about the other players. Well, uh, Kazem Nakfi is the drummer and, uh, he, 
he went to school with us there. He's he's actually the only one from the East Coast. He went to New School before that and lived in New York for a time. Actually, I think he may have lived in this building that we're in right now. <laughs> I just moved here about two weeks ago. But um, yeah, and he's a composer. He's he's won some awards for doing film music, and uh, uh, I think that also for a drummer kind of opened his paradigm up more than just a drummer who's a drummer. Um, he definitely writes music and I'd probably catch him listening to Stravinsky or Boulez just as much as, um, you know, jazz or, or rock or anything like that. And then the bass player's name is Sam Manai and he is, uh, he's playing a lot in a, in a trio now with Tigran Hamasian, who's a pianist who, uh, won the Monk Award seven, several years ago on piano. And they tour, they tour all around the world. He's in France. I think he's out of New York just about as much as he's in New York. So he plays a lot with the, with different people. I know, um, uh, I saw him just the other day with, with a group in Brooklyn and I didn't even know he's in town. So he's, <laughs> he's all over the place. He's playing with some, some really accomplished musicians right now. So he's originally from Reno, Nevada. So we all went to, all four of us went to CalArts together. So that's how we know each other. You touched on this a little bit, but the idea of, especially with a with an ambitious work like this, a suite that is interconnected, the idea of both uh, maintaining your artistic vision as the composer and also allowing room for mm. the improvising musicians that you're working with to express themselves. And I wonder how you worked out finding that balance, both in the writing and then in the performing of the music. Yeah, that can be interesting. Um, you know... When I first started composing, I would be really um, a little more anal about about holding people to what the original sound in my head was, and that produced certain certain results, and that's fine. And a lot of my music is written out, and it's specific to go to this section next. To you know that it needs to have this modulation, this metric modulation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think eventually I realized that what you're dealing with is is individuals who have honed their own sound in their mind's eye for for years and it's the idea of interdependence 
that, you know, we all at some point become independent. And then after that, we need to, to be able to trust each other. And so the balance, I guess, comes in, in writing music that, that is honest from, from where you're coming from. But at the same time, just being able to trust. I think trust is probably the word I'm looking for here and say, here's this music, do with it what you want. And if it goes too far in, the, in another direction, you know, I'll, I'll kind of bring it back to what I, what we were talking about. But some really great things have happened when, uh, people have done unexpected things, you know, and I've, I've let it go and it became something, uh, more exciting in that way. Something that I may have not have thought about without them. So yeah, it's that I always find that interesting. I mean, this is a question that comes up a lot on the show, but that, you know, striking that balance between allowing your own identity to be identity to be kind of subsumed into the group. And uh, on the other hand, also being the person who is, you know, kind of in the lead or setting the setting the musical direction. And I mean, I think you just obviously you just spoke about it, but I find it a very interesting balance, particularly a balance that it seems like you have to grow into to some degree, because I think everyone in the beginning has more of a kind of possessive feeling about the music that they make and a desire to say, this is me, this is my place, this is the ground right. I'm standing on. I don't know if that's a fair characterization. Yeah, I used to, you know, thinking about rehearsals, I used to to be really wordy and to tell people uh, to stop all the time and say, okay, now this, this way, and and now let's try it this way again. And then I started hearing about people like Miles Davis and Wayne Shorter who wouldn't say much at all but would get the results that they wanted. So I think there's a communication going on between people that's beyond words. And especially musicians, you know, it seems like sometimes when things are happening right, it's it's especially in improvisation, I think it's it's like we're reading each other's minds almost. There's there's a certain sense of telepathy that's happening and Sometimes it may, it may not happen the very first time we read something down, but if I let it go, the dynamic will be found, you know? So, um, yeah, I'm, I, I just want to think of it as we're all on this, this vehicle together. And I'm not trying to drive the vehicle, you know, but, um, if, if it needs kind of steering gently in one way or the other, kind of like, you know, I think it's a sort of a Zen idea of like kind of directing water instead of forcing something in the way you would do rock or wood. You know, if you could just kind of let it go one way or the other. I, I just, these musicians, they blow my mind and, and I'm lucky to play with them. And um, I, I want to turn as much as I can over to people from now on. That's that's kind of the way I'm, I'm going with it. You know? Sure. Thank you. 
Um, on the inside of this uh, record, there's a, a William Butler Yeats poem. I wondered if I could get you to read it and then uh, tell okay. me tell me why it's there. Sure. <clears throat> okay, it's called A Coat, and it says, I made my song a coat covered with embroideries out of old mythologies from heel to throat. But the fools caught it, wore it in the world's eyes as though they'd wrought it. Song, let them take it, for there's more enterprise in walking naked. Yeah, kind of gives me the chills. Yeah. Even now, I'm just reading it. <laughs> Tell me why that's there. Short answer is it just kind of struck, and it kind of felt right. You know, it's just something that I was I was reading through a book of his poetry, and 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 that one just said, "Wow, that's that's kind of it." Um, a little bit more of a developed answer would be, I guess that. I think what he was dealing with at the time was balancing between an idea of of what his craft should be and letting it go so that things could come to him. You know, he was a very, um, I think, a wise person in ways. And yeah, I I just, I feel like... um, the more you hold on to your art and fall in love with it, you know, the less opportunity there is for more. Um, uh, another guy at CalArts that kind of made a serious impact on us was uh, Wadada Leo Smith. And, and he said once, he said, you know, don't hold on to this experience. Take it and stuff it down into you and use it as fuel to propel you into the into the future. If you fall in love with your art and you want it to stay that way, you're in for some trouble because things aren't going to come to you. It's not going to there's not going to be that flow. So yeah, it's almost the idea of of don't wear it, you know, as a coat. Instead, be naked and and let the world see you for what you are and and let it bring whatever it brings, you know? Is there a is there a way that you can uh, maybe practically apply that or that you are practically applying it to the life that you're building here in New York as a musician or the one that you were building? In uh, yeah, I think in New York, you know, New York is such a dynamic place and there's so many stories and experiences. And if you look at the city, you really get this this idea of both impermanence and also history. You know, we're in a building right now that I think it definitely dates back to the early 1900s. And I, sometimes I think about this apartment, how many people have been in it, you know, and there's, there's this constant flux that's happening on the micro and the macro levels. Whereas, you know, there's people every day moving in, moving out, moving in, moving out. And then there's stores that are gutting and new things are coming along, you know, all oh, that used to be this club, but now it's something else. And I just think that the wind or, <clears throat> the tide or whatever you, whatever metaphor you want to use can bring a lot of things if you're open to them. You know, I, my life has been, you know, fighting this force, kicking and screaming, you know, and, and trying to, to force things to be what I want them to be. And it just seems like the more that I kind of let go and, and let things come, uh, I guess that's the way I think about, you know, the word naked that he's using there. Um, I think he was also, possibly a little fed up with with people critiquing his work and and saying you know what fine take it you know say whatever you want with it um he had a little bit of a a chip on his shoulder as far as as people critiquing his poems go but um 
as a life practice, I believe, yeah, it's, it's probably really important to be open to things. You know, uh, at certain times in my life, I said, no, I want to be a traditionalist. You know, and at certain times I wanted, I said, no, I want to be a progressive, you know, and, and that's just boxing yourself in and, and how can you be a progressive without understanding tradition? How can you be a traditionalist without understanding that the tradition of any art form, especially jazz, is one of progression and it is of innovation, you know? So if I have an agenda like that, an agenda of, of innovation, then it almost boxes me in in a way that I can't innovate at all. And in my life, you know, as far as, you know, gigs and money and, and my place in the world goes, I think this is all practical, you know. Uh, um, music and life seem to be very synonymous at this point, whereas uh, if I can let go in my life and, and expect things to come, and it's a daily battle, but if you can do that, then then new things will come and new opportunities will come. So, uh, likewise with music. Speaking of the practical, uh, we're able to listen to this record because of a, a fairly recent and practical innovation in the way that records can be made, which is uh, Kickstarter. Uh, and for folks who aren't familiar, it's basically a, a means of rather than getting one company to give you a large sum of money for a record, you get a bunch of people to give you small sums so that yeah. you can make it. Uh, and that is uh, how, at least in part, this record was funded. And I wonder if you could talk about what that experience was like and, and why you went in that route. Well, why I went in that route was because uh, I guess in this day and age, getting a large company to fund your record and and put you out there if you haven't won the Monk Award or I don't know, I I feel like the people I see that are young and and becoming famous or successful probably come from a few different outlets, and that's you know maybe maybe the Berkeley School, maybe uh, uh, the Monk Institute, and then. You know, then there are just kind of some flukes that that got discovered by Herbie Hancock or somebody in some way. <laughs> and it's like, okay, that's great. If that happens, that's wonderful. But um, in the meantime, you know, we're all going to play music. And and that's, that's what we're doing. So uh, a friend of mine actually said, uh, actually the pianist, uh, Amino, said, 
you know, have you thought about this for funding your album? Because we had recorded it a few years ago, and, and I was kind of holding on to it for the right opportunity. You know, I didn't want to um, do it really cheap and then and then kind of have it just sit there. So he said, have you thought about this? And, and I had never heard of crowdfunding. I think there's like over a dozen crowdfunding uh, agencies now that you can go through, and Kickstarter is probably the biggest one. I think one that's here in town is also Rocket Hub that a lot of my friends are using. So yeah, now I, I know a lot of people that are doing this, and it's a way to ask people that you know and even people that you don't know to help out in any way that they can to fund your album in exchange for you know basic awards. Some being just you know a CD in the mail, some being a private concert at your home, some being you know a T-shirt or whatever of the band or um, there's all different kinds of awards that people have and it's it's on the i've seen kickstarter projects for 45 dollars, and i've seen them for over two hundred thousand dollars that have been successful so it's really exciting you know uh we're at a time right now where everybody talks about the music industry being in such a troubled place but at the same time yeah there's people that that probably wouldn't have these opportunities that that now do have them on 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 some level we're on more of an even keel with with people who would have been uh you know pushed by by the large labels so uh i think it's probably the case that uh and this is one of the things i like about this show that many people who are listening to this episode will be hearing about you for the first time and so uh i'd like to fill in some of the biography and I, I, maybe you're sick of answering this question i don't know but we have to start with the fact that your name is Ocean Jewel, for God's sake. I mean, and you're from Kentucky. Yeah, I look at myself in the mirror a couple times a week and ask myself about that one. (laughs) So all all I can think of is that your parents and most of my friends would get along really well. Okay. If if your name is Ocean Jewel. That's put lightly. Yeah, most people see them with, uh, you know, some kind of uh, aluminum foil crown flower, flower crown on their head, dancing on the beach. You know, yes and no. I mean... The truth is, it's spelled different. It's O-C-H-I-O-N, and um, it sounds like ocean, but it was my great-grandfather's name. Oh, cool. And he was, uh, he was, you know, I'm from Appalachia, I'm from southeastern Kentucky, and he was from, uh, I believe West Virginia is where he was, and he was a coal miner, and if I'm not wrong, he was one of the first uh, union organizers, and just a really gentle soul and, and, and a great person that I think my my father really loved. So, um, and then again, my parents were probably a little bit free thinkers at the time, you know. My sister was born on the first day of summer, and they named her Aaron. And I, I always say, why didn't you name her Summer Jewel? And they said, well, that was five months, five years later. Maybe we had wised up a little bit. <laughs> but, you know, my first name is Patrick, and they always say they expected me to change my name to Patrick, but I don't know when they expected that to happen. But uh, luckily, it worked out that that I wasn't, uh, you know, uh, a legal accountant or something right. like that. It kind of worked that in my life. Well, this doesn't solve the mystery at all of where ocean comes from. It's spelled O-C-H-I-O-N, unless you also know the answer to that question. No, that, that that's what I'm talking about. Okay. That was my No, 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 I know that. But why is he named that? Well, I'll be honest. I've looked and looked, and I can't really find the name. So he was, um, that side of my family, Scots Irish, and it makes sense that it would be, you know, a Gaelic name or Celtic name. Okay. I've also heard possibilities of it being Dutch and even, you know, Scandinavian, but I don't I don't think there's any Scandinavian in my family. But um I guess it probably was a couple letters was changed or a letter was changed at some point, which sure. often happens. So um, you know, if it was O S H 
iron or something like that some uh, people who know about this thing have told me that that would make the most sense okay but you know rather besides contacting the mormons i haven't really done right. all that much research <laughs> i've looked it up on google but i can't really find it so it's interesting to me too if you find something out let me know please. i certainly will it, it's worked out um and so but, tell me about where you grew up yeah i grew up i grew up in uh, southeastern kentucky so uh we're talking about you know the appalachian side of kentucky in the mountains so, you know, a lot of coal mining and tobacco, and um, I actually grew up in a dry county, which for people in New York, that means there was no alcohol. I don't know if that's possible for people to imagine, <laughs> but, um, and the surrounding several counties was dry as well. So you're a traveler from the 1800s, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I come from a different time. <laughs> that's very there's a, there's a portal yeah, yeah. up never... on 67th Street. <laughs> I've never interviewed anybody who came through a time machine. That's really, really exciting. This is a first on this show. That's yeah, great. don't tell anybody. Oh, wait. Uh, no, but, yeah, it You know, it, it actually doesn't mean that there's no alcohol in the area. I, I can promise you that. Right. But what it does mean is that, um, you know, restaurants, like corporate restaurants, are not going to open in a place like that. Places like red lobster or applebee's that you know you're not going to get that and you're not going to get much of anything and so there were definitely no bars and what i'm getting to by all this is that there were no music venues sure there's basically nothing i mean the, there was a small local college that had a choir and a pep band and i we were in marching band that's how i came up which i loved and hated very much but i started playing uh, in you know concert bands symphonic orchestras uh, symphonic wind ensembles and then got to go out of town and do some some projects like that honor bands and that's pretty much how i got really interested into music um uh yeah i, I feel really lucky to even know what jazz is at, at this point you know but but when i went to college uh i went to Un university of louisville for my undergrad and then cal arts for my master's when i went to college i was i was a classical saxophone major which you know is sort of a oxymoron, but it does exist. <laughs> there are classical saxophonists in the world, but <clears throat> of course I did play a lot of jazz at the school and that's, that's pretty much where I came up and Jamie Abersall taught at the school at the time. And it's sort of his, um, his thing, but, but yeah, we were playing Bach transcriptions on the saxophone and, and Schumann and, and, you know, anything you could find flute, flute music on the saxophone and playing cello suites on the tenor saxophone it's kind of difficult. There's no place to breathe, but <laughs> I feel really good. I feel really lucky that, that I came up with that. You know, um, if it had just been, if I'd been in a place where I was able to be, to study jazz right off the bat, I think maybe some of what I had been exposed to wouldn't have happened. Mm. So, and I mean, even thinking about this, this piece, this suite, I don't know if I'd even call it jazz. There's one piece that swings, and I, I love playing standards. I, I do that all the time, but um, I don't know if I'd like to call this music really anything. Um, now, for the sake of festivals and, and interviews and magazines, yeah, let's call it jazz. But beyond that, you know, it's just music, and it has a lot of different elements involved. So, And where did uh, – you mentioned in college, certainly, but uh, had the idea of improvised music – been introduced to you even before you got to college or was it really not till you decided your undergrad? Well, yeah. Um, you know, not only did I grow up in a place without, you know, bars and music venues and, and concert halls, but, um, and this, this sounds really strange to say, but you know, we didn't have the internet at the time. 
So believe it or not, that that happened. That was that was in existence. There was there wasn't Google and there certainly wasn't YouTube. So um, my father would bring home an album every now and then, a CD of something, and uh, I started listening to jazz music. I think I listened. The first thing I might have listened to. I think the first thing I might have listened to was like David Sanborn, you know, some sort of smooth jazz kind of things. And then after that, um, you know, there was like Charlie Parker, who I thought, wow, what a great saxophonist. That's that's pretty much the thought I had. Sure. And then after that, he brought something else, uh, Miles Davis. And then I remember be- us b- being out and I, I got, I think I got a Love Supreme actually was the next wow. album that I got. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm hearing like Coltrane's most spiritual late you know groundbreaking music free music from the depths of the earth and his soul and i'm and i'm thinking oh wait a minute so jazz is actually not just playing your instrument jazz is is being an artist and um at the time i was playing classical music and i i I wanted to be a composer because to me that was you know to i had played some pieces uh, I think by Alfred Reed or somebody that, you know, made me feel a certain way that it evoked an emotion in everyone that had played it. And I thought, wow, that's kind of the magic of music right there. I want to do that. I want to bring something out of the world or into the world, whatever you want to say that, that, that makes people feel a certain way. And so I was like, well, I guess I'll have to just be a composer then because, you know, um, and then I learned through jazz that you can you can do both. You can be a composer, you can play your instrument, and play it in a way that is unique to you. And then you can also improvise, which is which means basically you can bring stuff out of the moment. And there's a real magic in that that I I I feel um, I feel lucky to be to have been exposed to. You know, I think about it sometimes that. Uh, a lot of the students I have that are young right now, they have YouTube and they have Spotify and and all of these avenues. They have everything. They can watch old interviews with Charlie Parker. And I didn't even know these things existed until a few years ago, you know? <laughs> <clears throat> and that's great. And that's got to be such an advantage. But at the same time, I don't know. I think there was something really special about having three or four CDs and listening to them over and over and over and really getting deeply into that music you know and i think about some of the music that's out right now and i love pop music i love hip-hop i love rock i love you know but i think some of the stuff i hear on the radio and and i think you know people are listening to it almost as if there's a veil over them head their head they're not listening into the music it's almost like they're just pounding this mundane beat into them and they don't have to actually listen it's just there you know and they blast it in their car and that's great but you know it's fun to dance to sometimes great but there's something about getting deep into an album and no matter what it is you know it could be bob dylan but like really listening to it over and over and hearing different things every time and 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 listening into it and i think yeah those those albums i had as a kid they were they were special there was something really cool about getting a new one and being able to listen to it and and it's like wow i'm glad i have this because there's not everything at my fingertips you know yeah i remember uh the rock guitarist adrian blue uh oh yeah who's one of my favorites saying that when he was a kid 
he had a few Beatles albums and he just listened to them. You know, he would go through and listen to one person's part and then another person's part. And then he would listen to how they related to each other. And he said he learned just everything he knew initially about songwriting and about how to put a band together by listening to how they did it just really intensely. I mean, really studying the craft of each individual tune, which, you know, sounds like a very similar thing to what you're talking about. This idea of really pulling apart the music and looking inside to see what its constituent parts are and then how they fit back together in a very deep kind of analytical way as well as an emotional way yeah that makes sense i mean i mean sometimes i think you know what was charlie parker listening to you know or miles davis what i mean were they really listening to every jazz album that had been made in the last 40 years and they knew you know like almost like baseball trading cards was that happening i don't think so you know i think they had maybe from what i hear charlie parker had some country albums some stravinsky albums and then like lester young or coleman hawkins Maybe like eight albums in total. (laughs) (laughs) And this is the genius that invent, that kind of invented, you know, well, bebop at least. And so, you know, what, what does that mean for us? And, and I don't want to, you know, I think it, I think the internet and even television can be very resourceful. And, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily negative about it, but I did, I did read something, or I think maybe it was an interview on Ted recently about, how there's a new addiction that is coming. You know, the old addiction used to be more, more, more of something, whether it be, you know, a drug or television or whatever it is. Um, and now the new addiction has to do with different, different, different. So people aren't actually able to enjoy something over and over. You know, they're not, they're not able to actually enjoy having, uh, this this thing whether it's a good film that you watch several times or whatever it is um they they need different now okay that's good now next you know okay good next and so i think that's something we need to be you know myself i'm I'm trying to be careful about so interesting you say that i'm definitely the kind of person and it sounds like maybe you are too who i've seen my favorite movies many times and i've read my favorite books many times and i discover new things in them each time that's why it's worth i mean not everything merits repeated viewing because of its depth some things are just fun to watch right but there are things that i've read and seen and listened to that each time i go back to them i say i've listened to this album 500 times and i never heard this one thing before and i've talked to many people who when i I've said, oh, would you like to see this movie? And they said, oh, you haven't seen it? And I said, oh, no, I've seen it a bunch of times. And they said, oh, I've never watched a movie more than once. I can't imagine watching a movie more than once. And I just, I can't really get behind that mindset. I can't get into the idea of not wanting to see what else is inside there. Yeah, I mean, if you if you watch a Kubrick film, I mean, the guy made, 
well, a dozen films in 40 years or something, or maybe even less. And he puts so much care and effort into this art. You know, is there is there a reason that I shouldn't enjoy it again? Is there a reason that I shouldn't look at a, at a Picasso again at different points in my life? I mean, my perspective is going to change even daily, but, but especially from year to year. Sure. And I'm going to see more things, and hopefully I'm going to be more aware of what I'm I'm taking in. You know, I think of, of art kind of like food, uh, spiritual food. And and I think it's important to know what we put in. Don't get me wrong. I, I You know, I like the hangover. You know, I, right. I, I love just <laughs> laughing or whatever. It's great. Fine. Um, but at the same time, I think it's important to, to be able to actually uh, – focus inward to these things and really take them into your to your being and and to be able to feel how it affects you you know uh and yeah i think people people just you know go on to the next thing they go on to the next thing and and maybe relationships are like that too these days i don't know but yeah um, i i I guess you know the the point being you asked about my origins and i feel very lucky you know it was difficult at times but it, it I feel really lucky to have come from where I where I did come from, you know. And when did you make the the kind of mental transition into deciding that pursuing a career as a musician was not only something was something you wanted to do and thought you could achieve? <laughs> <laughs> and if you say not yet, yeah, right. <laughs> that's was, a totally acceptable. Thinking, answer. Well, <laughs> yesterday I had that thought once. <laughs> um. I remember being really young and and saying that this is what I wanted to do and not knowing even what it was or what the f- the finished product of what I wanted to do quote unquote would be but I also remember having long periods of time where there was doubt and uh and times that I even turned away from it and said you know what I'm going to have a quote unquote normal life and uh, yeah it just made me sick so, I mean, literally, you know, ill to try to be something other than what I was. So, uh, my father met a musician once in New Orleans and, and he said, wow, you're really gifted. You, it, you know, it's a blessing. And the guy said, yeah, and a curse. <laughs> and I, I don't think there's any turning away from it at this point, you know, um, not that I'm not open to what, what would come, but, um. You know, you find out through life that, A, this is not you. You know, your art or music is not who you are. You're more than that. And then you find out at the same time that, wait, this is you. So it, it's something about knowing that you're more than this and that at the same time you're going to come back to it. You know, if you if you go around the block, as they say, you know, you're going to come back to who you are and and it's not going to be... It, you're not going to get away from it. So I, I don't know if I could take ownership in that decision. I really don't think I could. Um, mm. uh, all I know is this is something that fired me up when I was a little kid. And even, you know, even yesterday I had moments where I was just felt elated by the possibility of, of playing music or even just being around music or even just that knowing it exists. And, uh, that's, that's just something for me that, that I can't, I can't really turn away from at this point. So I hope it turns out well. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, 
it's who we are. And, and, you know, I had a teacher once that said, if you want to, if you want to be a better musician, work on who you are. And that that's, you know, that's really important to, to know who you are and, and to, to work on being a better person and let that kind of come through what you're doing. Hmm. So my guest is the saxophonist and composer ocean jewel. His new CD is called first suite for quartet. And uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, man. I hope you'll come back on the show as this thing called your life unfolds and uh, we can do it again. <laughs> Thanks Jason. It's, it's my pleasure to be here and, and it's a lot of fun. So great. That's music from saxophonist Ocean Jewel and his first suite for quartet. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. It's online at thejazzsession.com. Please go there, become a member, sign up for the newsletter. And remember, all of the shows, all 351 episodes of the Jazz Session are online for free. You can download them anytime you want. You can stream them online. You can pass them around to your friends. Uh, they're all there for free. They always will be there for free. And I should mention also, for the members, there is new content in the members section. There are two interviews that were not heard on the show, but that are there in the members section with uh, Kenny Wheeler and Henry Grimes. Things that didn't quite have enough in them to be episodes of the show, but have enough in them to warrant your listening, I think. And there's going to be some new music downloads uh, going up very soon as well. And then there are uh, things from the past as well. Interviews with uh, Les McCann, not from the jazz session, but from the radio. There's a, a very funny clip of Matthew Shipp and Darius Jones talking about Elton John and a, a song that Matt Shipp has always wanted to play. Uh, and there's other things like that. So please do uh, go to the members section if you are a member. And of course, you can get into it by becoming a member. Meanwhile, get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. <laughs>